All right, well, thank you so much, John and Rebecca. Welcome to Living Hope Church. We're so glad you're with us this morning. If your children are um, going down to Children's Church, they can dismiss out the back uh, with Miss Chandra. Um, if your children are staying with us in the service, there's activities on that back table that they are free to grab and use throughout this service as well. Um, so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago we were in Acts chapter 18, uh, and we were looking at Paul's missionary journey to the city of Corinth. Um, and in that, we saw God move in a city that was full of sin and that was far from God. Uh, Corinth, as we talked about, it was, it was like Vegas today, but way worse. And yet in the midst of that, God moved, God saved, and God built his church. And so today, we're going to journey one chapter and 180, 180 miles by sea to the city of Ephesus. Uh, so we're in Acts 19. And on the surface, Ephesus feels or seems less lost than Corinth. Ephesus' sin and its lostness was, was less in your face than Corinth. But we see it was just as lost and just as in need of a Savior as Corinth was. So as we arrive in Ephesus, let me just give you a little bit of background on the city. Ephesus is located in, in modern-day Turkey. As I said, it's about 180 miles uh, on the other side of the Aegean, Aegean Sea from Corinth. Ephesus was an important city because it served as the primary port for that region of Asia Minor. Everything went and came through Ephesus. And because of its port, Ephesus was an incredibly wealthy city and also a very ethnically diverse city. Uh, another thing, the, the city of Ephesus, they were known for their sports and for their love of sports. Uh, Ephesus would host a yearly uh, regional Olympic type event where people from all over the world came to their city to compete and spectate. They had this grand stadium that you can still go to, to, to where Ephesus was and visit the ruins today. The stadium boasted a capacity of over 25,000 people. Uh, to put that in perspective, War Memorial in Laramie, which many of you have visited, has, holds 29,000 people. So envision a stadium of that size in the ancient world watching the greatest athletes compete. Uh, the city of Ephesus also uh, hosted the world's largest library at that time. And so Ephesus, as we come to it, it's this ethnically diverse city that worshipped and prioritized wealth, sports, and intellectual ascent. I mean, Ephesus sounds a lot like America today. But more than that, more than all those things, Ephesus was known for their temple, for their goddess Artemis, or Diana in the Roman tradition. The temple was the world's largest temple at that time. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Rome. It was considered one of the seven man-made wonders of the ancient world. And at the center of this temple was a statue of the goddess, goddess Artemis that was carved from a meteorite. Artemis was the goddess of fertility, uh, but she wasn't just the goddess of fertility in terms of having children, but she was there to make all of your efforts prosperous and fertile. She was the reason they believed that Ephesus was such a great city. The city of Ephesus, as we come to it, it worshipped at the feet of Artemis, and they believed that she was the source of their prosperity, protection, and she had to be protected and appeased at all costs. Now, as modern and Western thinkers, we scoff and kind of laugh at this notion of worshiping a statue or a meteorite. But as we examine this passage today, I want us to see that we might not worship statues on our mantle, but idol worship or, or worshiping the things of this world is still very much alive in our culture. And maybe more importantly, it's alive in our lives. We may worship different things, but our desires remain the same. John, John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. And so as modern thinkers and modern people, we are not immune to this kind of idol worship. We all have things in this world that we worship or are tempted to worship and make our God. 
But the amazing thing we're going to see today and the amazing thing about this story in Ephesus is the clear difference between the gospel. And when I say the gospel, that's just the story of Jesus, the, the story of salvation that he offers us. And so the amazing thing about Ephesus is this clear difference between the gospel of who Jesus is and idol worship. And we see in here the impact the gospel makes in the life of those that turn. So we're in Acts chapter 19 where the, the scene plays out and it powerfully presents the difference in impact uh, that Jesus has when we fully embrace him. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 11. All right. So Luke writes, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Verse 13, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits. So so we have Paul, and Paul is saving people's lives. He's healing people in the name of Jesus. But then there's this other group of Jews that we run into, and we're going to talk about them as we go, the, the seven sons of Sheba. And they would travel around, and, and they would uh, pretend to drive out demons and perform miracles. When you read the commentaries, they compare these men, these seven sons of Sheba, to modern-day people who, who claim to heal in the name of God. They're the people that you find on TV but often what they do is not real. And so these guys see what God is doing through Paul, and they think, well, let's make some money on this, and let's start healing people in his name and charging, and, and we will be prosperous because of this. And so that's what they do. They try and make uh, money and a name for themselves on the name of Jesus. So it goes on, verse 13. And so they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those whom were demon-possessed. They would say to them, in the name of, of the Jesus whom Paul preaches... So they don't know him, but Paul preaches, so they're going to try it. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sheba, a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this. And so these seven sons of Sheba, they're going around, and, and they're, they're trying to make money. And then one of the demons answers them, and this demon answers them with one of the, the ultimate insults in the Bible. The demon says, Jesus I know, and he says, Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And so these guys are mocked and they are beaten because they were not empowered by God, but instead were trying to make money off the backs of others' pain. The next verse, verse 17, is, is maybe one of the most important ones in here, but we'll come back to it. This is verse 17. It says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So in Ephesus, there was this practice of collecting uh, these books and worshiping, uh, worshiping the sorcery and this sort of thing. And these Christians' are, are desires are so transformed by Jesus, they don't, only not, they don't just sell their books, but they burn them. So they won't be, only be gone from their lives, so they won't harm others as well. And these aren't just newspapers. They're, they're burning. But the number 50,000 drachmas, scholars say, equates to $7 million today. And so when you follow Jesus, it changes your desires and affections. And that, that change will produce radical life change. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. And the way is just the Christian movement. It comes from when Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. 
a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen, craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. And in practically the whole province of Asia. And, and Demetrius says, he, Paul says, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Scholars say that the way this is written indicates this is a statement. God made by human hands are no gods at all. That was likely attributed to Paul in every city he went. This was Paul's campaign. Gods made with hands, those are not gods. If you concoct a God in your mind, he is not worthy of worship. The real God, the God of the universe should challenge you, should be bigger than you, should love, protect, and care for you. God is creator, not created. Demetrius continues in verse 27. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so when the businessmen, they see these books being burned, they see less and less people buying their little statues to Artemis, they get concerned. They decide they've got to do something about it. They've got to protect Artemis, and they've got to protect their, life, their lifestyle and their, their trade. The Christian faith is impacting the culture, not through political pressure, but because genuine life change is changing the affections and the desires of those that are following Jesus. And so to Demetrius, he's going to gather his buddies, and they're going to come to the aid, and they are going to save and protect Artemis. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I'd imagine 25,000 people, imagine War Memorial Stadium just chanting to protect their God, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. And so that is the story of Ephesus. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to start unpacking this passage. God, we thank you that you are a God that is greater than anything we could concoct or create. We thank you that you are a God that is worthy to be worshipped. We thank you are a God that, that doesn't demand our sacrifice, but sacrificed on our behalf. We thank you that you are a God that gives life. And so, God, my prayer today for us this morning is first, if we are a follower of you, Lord, that we would recognize the, the idols or those things that we are tempted to make God in our life, that we are tempted to worship instead of you. And, God, would you make those uh, clear to us, Lord, and that we would turn and trust you. And God, I pray that there's someone here that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that they would see that you are greater and you are better than whatever it is they are pursuing in this life, that they would see and know that you are the one that created them and offers them eternal life, and that they would turn and follow you. So God, I pray you just speak to us in these next few moments, Lord, and that you would draw us to deeper faith, perhaps faith for the first time in you this morning. God, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So as we unpack this passage, I really want us to leave knowing two things this morning. And those two things I want us to leave knowing are what is or is, is, is what is an idol? And within that, what are the idols that maybe I am worshiping or I am tempted to worship in my life? And then secondly, I want us to leave knowing why Jesus and, and why the gospel, the hope of the Bible, the, the salvation offered in Jesus is so much greater and so much better than the idols and things of this world. So we said it in the intro, but often we, we struggle to relate with the, the idol worship of Artemis because our idols are much more refined than statues today. 
And so the first thing I want us to see today is that idols aren't just goddesses in temples, but they are ever-present in our society. They are present in our lives and in our thinking. And so our, our first point is what are idols? And that is that idols are anything we trust for joy and security apart from God. Right, the people of Ephesus loved and worshipped Artemis because, they, because she promised them security. She promised them prosperity. She ultimately promised them happiness if they trusted and sacrificed for her. As I said, you probably don't have a statue on your mantle you pray to, but what are those things that you, you seek and trust for happiness, for joy, and for a future? What is it in your life you think, if I just had that, if I just had more of that, if I had that, then I would be happy then I would be secure. Then my life would be fulfilled. Is it influence? Is it recognition? Is it prestige? Is it wealth? Is it fame? Is it respect? Is it a relationship? Is it children? Is it some idealized version of family? Is it a bigger salary? Is it a cabin? Is it a camper? Is it a boat? Is it a new car? Right? Maybe it's a beauty or a fitness goal that you think will satisfy you if you can get there. Right? Maybe it's a new job. Maybe it's a promotion. Maybe it's a move. What is it you think would make you happy, fulfilled, and satisfied if you had it? Whatever that is, that is likely your idol. That is the thing that is tempting you to be your idol. I've said it before on this subject, but idols are rarely bad things. But idols are often good things that we make God things in our lives. They are good things that we have become convinced that we cannot be happy or fulfilled without. So some of you might already recognize the idols in your life, but if not, let's delve a little closer to the characteristics of idols. One of the things we see in Ephesus and we see in our lives today is that idols, they have to be protected. We must protect our idols in order, to, uh, in order for them to give us what we want. This is a bit ironic because Artemis was supposed to be the protector of the city, but Demetrius' rallying cry is that they must protect Artemis from Paul and the Christians. Idols must be protected. They must be defended in our life. So you think about your life, what is it that you obsess over protecting? What is the thing that the idea of losing or never gaining causes you to despair? Just a couple of examples. These might not be you, but just examples to get us thinking. If, if wealth is your idol, then you will do all that you can do to hold on to what you have. You hoard it. You, you won't share or give it away. When God lays on your heart to give, you will double down to protect your wealth. It is your responsibility to store away and protect because you've made it your God. If it's a relationship that has become your idol, you, you become clingy, you become dependent, you manipulate, you ignore other people, other relationships and commitments. You worry because you believe you cannot lose that relationship and still be fulfilled, satisfied, and joyful. You will sacrifice and your values and your integrity, your anything to protect that relationship. Right? If your children, hey, there could not be a better thing, but if your children become your idol, then you manipulate and you control every aspect of life in order to protect them and keep them in your bubble. Now, as parents, it's our responsibility to raise and protect our children, but when there are idols, it becomes an unhealthy thing. We no longer view our responsibilities raising and releasing, but we see our responsibilities protecting and sheltering above all. If God is your reputation, then you must, you must protect your reputation at all costs. You're constantly on alert for anything that possibly might be said bad about you. Or even anything that could be interpreted as bad. You can't take any criticism. You always have to make sure you get all the credit that you deserve. So what is it in your life? It, it might not be any of those things, but what is it in your life that you feel like you have to protect and hold on to at all costs? Another characteristic of idols is they always demand sacrifices. The whole system of life in Ephesus revolved around keeping Artemis happy. 
so that she would help them to prosper. That's, the, that's what idols are always like. They call on us to sacrifice in order to satisfy our idol. Read all, we read all the time of businessmen and, and women, and we've seen it in our community, who cheat in order to, to see the business or themselves prosper. Most of the time, those people are, are not habitual liars. They're not habitual frauds. But they have sacrificed their integrity in order to gain more wealth, power, or a promotion because it's become their God. 1 Timothy 6.10 says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. I think you can insert whatever your idol is in that verse, and it will lead us to sacrifice our integrity to get it or hold on to it. Again, examples, if success at your job is your idol, then you will sacrifice your time or your family to get it. You will lie and tear down others in your job in order to promote yourself. You will sacrifice your health, your hobbies, your joy in order to accomplish it, and it will never be enough. Or this was an earlier point as well, but there are many that are so scared of being single and alone that they will sacrifice their convictions, their morals, their beliefs in order to secure, protect, and hold on to a relationship. Many in our culture, we are, we are slaves to the idol of comfort and personal comfort. And we won't do anything outside of that which brings us comfort and happiness or perceived happiness. People will sacrifice their money, their, their financial freedom, their future in order to get what they think will make them happy and comfortable in the moment. Idols demand our sacrifice, and it's never enough. They constantly demand more. 19th century philosopher William James, who is far from a Christian, he described the goddess of success, the idol of success. And he described it in a word that I'm not, I'm not going to use for the pulpit. But he went on to describe that the goddess of success constantly wants more and more. And this could go for anything. He said, first you will sacrifice your time for success or for your idol. Then you will sacrifice your family. Then you will sacrifice your health. Then you will sacrifice your integrity. And eventually, he says, you are left with nothing. We read about ancient civilizations sacrificing children to their idols. And at first, we, we were repulsed. How could you do that? If you pause for a second and think about it, we do the same thing. There are many that, that sacrifice their children and, their, and their, their upbringing, what's best for them in an attempt to gain success, to, to, to uh, increase their comfort, their wealth, their prestige, their relationship, and so on. Because you can't imagine life being good without whatever it is that is your idol. And you'll sacrifice even the people closest to you for it. Jimmy Johnson was, uh, was the coach for the Dallas Cowboys in the 90s. He was a great coach. He led them to, to multiple Super Bowls. But prior to being the coach of the Cowboys, Jimmy Johnson was the, the coach for the Miami Hurricanes. And when he got the NFL job, he immediately divorced his high school sweetheart because he would, quote, rather live alone in order to focus on his new job and because he no longer needed a wife to recruit players, right? His marriage had been a fraud for his personal success. And as soon as it was no longer needed, as soon as his wife was no longer needed, he let her go. His idol was his work, his success, and himself, and he was willing to sacrifice anything to get it. Idols demand sacrifice. What is it in your life that you will sacrifice almost anything in order to obtain, right? That's likely your idol or your potential idol. So as you hear this, this description of what idols are, what is, what is those things that are your idols or are tempted to be your idols? I know we're at church, and, and we all have this desire to save face and look good. So you're telling yourself, I, I can't think of anything right now. But be honest. What are those things in your life that you believe will make you happy? What are those things that you protect at all costs? What are those things that you would give almost anything in order to have, to achieve, or to hold on to? I, I know as I think about my life, there are definitely things that come to mind. Good things in my life that I have a tendency to make God things in my life. Things that I falsely believe will make me happy if I can achieve them or if I only had those. What are those things in your life? Right? Those are idols. Those are what idols are. They're not just statues 
but they're those things we desire. So that's the first half of the sermon. It's kind of the downside of the sermon, the Debbie Downer of the sermon. But what is an idol? What are those things that have become idols in your life? But the second half of the sermon, I want us to see that the gospel, I want to see that the message and the hope and the forgiveness offered in Jesus is better than the idols of the world. It is better than the pursuits of the world. And Jesus is, in fact, the only way to find true peace and joy in this world. We started reading in verse 11, but if you go back to verse 10, we see Paul's approach to sharing the gospel in the city of, of idolatry. And, and it's simple. He says he shares the word of God. It's the same in Corinth, as Corinth last week. He says, I shared nothing but Christ and Christ crucified. In the city of Isles, Paul shares the gospel. And the gospel, Jesus confronts and overcomes idolatry. So how, how does it do that? How is the gospel better? What is the gospel? The gospel is better because God alone, the gospel alone gives life. The gospel says God alone gives life. It's not the things of this world, but it's God alone. Our God is not made with human hands, but he instead is the creator of all. Our God doesn't need you to create him. He created you. He knows you. He gave his life for you, and he loves you. I love how J.D. Greer said, he said, he said, God's love is more faithful, more tender, and more fulfilling than romance. His promises are more secure and more reliable than money. His presence is more life-sustaining than creature comforts. His future more fulfilling than a fertile family. His attention and affections better than the praise of people. God is creator, and he is greater than any of the idols or pursuits of this world that we trust to satisfy and fulfill us. The sin of idolatry is turning from the creator that created us to love and worship him and giving our love and worship to something that man has created ourselves. In Jeremiah 2.13, God speaks to the people of Israel through the prophet. And the, the, the nation of Israel at that time had fallen into idolatry. This is what he says to them. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot even hold water. So the first sin of idolatry is against God. Jeremiah says, in idolatry we forsake our God who created us to love him. He is the spring of living water. He is the spring of life, and we have forsaken the one who gives us life. And then the second sin of idolatry is we take our faith, and we take it from that it was meant for God, that it was meant for the creator, our worship meant for the creator, and we turn and we trust to something man has created. So what a powerful contrast. God is the spring that never stops supplying life. He never stops giving us what we need. But we turn from that, we forsake that for cisterns that we create that cannot even hold the water we need to live and be satisfied. Idols take the life we have and they drain it. God is creator, sustainer, and he gives us life. The second truth the gospel offers is that God doesn't need our protection. Idols need our protection. But instead, God protects us. The gospel, Jesus, the Bible doesn't demand its followers to protect God. It doesn't demand us to protect his name, to protect his reputation. Instead, the God of the Bible offers protection and provision for those that follow him. He ultimately offers us assurance of eternal life, of a future of good if we will turn and follow him. King David in Psalm 18 says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my refuge, my fortress. And in Psalm 27, he writes, the Lord, my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Our idols demand us to sacrifice to protect them. 
that Jesus promises to protect us. The gospel says to us, you can't let go of your idols. You, need not, you can let go of your idols. You need not worry about them because I am your sustainer and provider. God tells us you don't need to worry about money, about success, about recognition, about your relationship status, about your children. He says, turn and follow me. Trust me, and I will care for them and provide for them. For I alone am sustainer, protector, and in me alone you will find joy and life abundant. Finally, and most importantly, the gospel tells us of the one true God that not only created us, not only protects and provides for us, but he gave his own life for us. The gospel is that God doesn't demand our sacrifice. But instead, he gave his life for us. Our idols, the pursuits of this world say, if you don't do enough for me, then you're going to be miserable. The idols, the pursuits of this world say, if you don't do enough for me, then you will miss out. You will be unhappy. You won't keep up with the people around us, around you. Idols demand our sacrifice. But Jesus says to us, you failed me. You left me. You turned your back on me. But I gave my life so that you could be forgiven, so that your relationship could be restored with God. So you could experience eternal life. Jesus sacrificed. He gave his all for you and me. So that we could be forgiven for our sins. For our wrongdoings. Jesus says to you and he says to I. You have failed me. Yes. Yes you've turned your back on me. But I so loved you that I sacrificed my life. I paid the penalty for your sins. So that you could be forgiven. I don't know how many of you have ever read the book of Hosea. It's a little minor prophet book in the Old Testament. But it's an incredible book about the faithfulness of God. And Hosea is a prophet, and God calls on him and to live his life really is a picture of God's love for us. And God calls him to go and to marry this promiscuous woman named Gomer. And time and time again in this book of Hosea, this woman is unfaithful to Hosea, and he just keeps taking her back as his own. And it's this picture of God's love for the nation of Israel and this picture of his love for you and me. Right, God ought to have divorced and left the nation of Israel behind. He ought to have left us behind, forgotten about us, forsaken us for our sins. But instead, he brings us back time and time again. And he only does this through the cross when he takes the guilt and the shame and the sin, the curse, the death we deserve. He suffers the consequences so that we can be forgiven. Right, idols demand us to sacrifice. Jesus has sacrificed his life for you and for me. The late Tim Keller wrote, Jesus is the only God whom when you retain him, he will satisfy you. And when you fail him, he will forgive you. Have you ever experienced his love? Have you ever returned to God and experienced his grace and forgiveness? Have you ever experienced the God who is creator, sustainer, sustainer who gave his life for you? If you're here and you've never done that for the first time, would you consider the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is? The truth that, that God loves you. That he gave his life for you. That he offers forgiveness to you if you will repent of your sin and turn and follow him. Right? The pursuits of this world, they're going to let you down. They will leave you empty. John shared that in his testimony. They will call on you to sacrifice. But God has given his life so that you can be forgiven. Or maybe you're here and you've done that, but you have slipped back into idolatry. You need to repent and return to the living water from the dry cistern. Would you do that today? See, so often we think about following Jesus. Just, we just say this get out of hell prayer and then we check off boxes. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to turn your desires and your affections from yourself and from the world and turn to Jesus and worship him. So I want to wrap up today by just looking at the passage and what following Jesus meant for the Christians in Ephesus. 
and what it ought to look, in, for, look like in our lives today. Let's look at verse 17. This is on the heels of the sons of Shiva's experience, and the people see the power of the one true God. Verse 17 reads, When this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Others' versions say that the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or worshipped. When the believers in Ephesus heard this story, they were reminded of the power of God, and they worshipped and magnified the name of God. When you become a follower of God, when you receive his forgiveness, when you experience how great he is and how much he loves you, you can't help but magnify and glorify him. The people of Ephesus, they worshiped everything but God. But when they came to faith, their allegiance switched, and they worshiped and made much of the God of the universe. In Ephesus, in the city of idolatry, when people came to faith, they worshiped and magnified the name of Jesus. So what does following Jesus look like in our life? It should look like us magnifying and making much of his name. So who or what do you worship? Whose name do you magnify? Do you make much of in your life and to the world? Do you magnify and make much of your own name, a relationship, a team, an activity, a comfort, or is it the name of God? If I were to ask your your five closest friends, what would they say is most important to you? When we experience Jesus, we can't help but worship, magnify, and glorify him. Picking up verse 18, we see the next response of those who experienced Jesus and, and loved him. It says, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. I mean, these Christians in Ephesus, they came from a messed up world. And so they had all sorts of baggage and sinful habits and practices just like you and I do. But as their love for Jesus grows, they come and begin confessing their sin. As their love for Jesus grows, they begin to see what an affront their sin is. They begin confessing and turning from it. Now their sin, in this case, their idolatry, was witchcraft and sorcery. Sorcery And these sayings and incantations they believe would bring them good luck and happiness and blessings. And they don't just confess their sin, but they make a dramatic break from their sin. They gather these books that are causing them to sin, and they don't just put them in the basement or sell some of them or, or commit, I'm just never going to open that book again. But instead, they take them to the square, and they burn them and rid themselves of the temptation. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? To follow Jesus, it, it leads to a break from sin. This would equate to whatever sin entangles us today, right? For us, it's probably not sorcery. It's probably not magical incantations. But you know what sin it is that you struggle with. The Christians in Ephesus in this moment, they didn't allow the sin of foothold, but they confessed it and they broke away from it. Now, I'm sure that there are some that said, well, isn't that just kind of a little extreme, right? Seven million dollars, couldn't we have done something with that money? But what we see is when we love Jesus and understand, understand the affront that sin is to him, that we want to rid ourselves from it. We don't want to continue just to flirt with it. We don't want to continue to allow it to, to cause us or someone else to stumble. When we are following Jesus, when we love Jesus, we understand the hurt and pain that sin causes. And we take dramatic steps to break from it. Now for you, I don't know what that might be, but you, you probably do. Whatever it is, take that step to rid yourself from sin. Right? For you, it might mean getting rid of a phone number or social media so you can't DM with that person you shouldn't be in a relationship with. Maybe even getting rid of social media so you're not constantly promoting yourself and, and worried about likes or whatever it is to, 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 that you have made your God. 
It might mean moving the computer, the cell phone from your bedroom to a public location. It might be get, mean getting rid of it altogether. It might mean selling the car or the thing that you have made your idol. I don't know what it is in your life, but, but if God places something in your life that you need to break from, go and do it. We see in Ephesus that it is worth it. Don't allow sin to have a foothold in your life. This kind of action isn't done out of duty, but it's done out of a love for a Savior that is more valuable than anything this world has to offer. Love is the motivation. Love causes us to take dramatic steps to protect that love. Real quickly, I got two paragraphs left. Real quickly, the final thing we see in the city of Ephesus is that when the church comes to faith in Jesus, when their love is growing, when their worship is increasing, when they confess their sin, it changes their lifestyle. And when it changes their lifestyle, it impacts their community. In verse 24, Demetrius gets concerned because people are coming to faith and no longer worshiping the goddess Artemis. I love that. They haven't formed a formal boycott. They aren't protesting through the local government or through the streets. But when the church gets on fire for Jesus, it changes the way they live their lives. And that impacts the community. Our love for Jesus changes our desires and affections from the idols of this world to the things of God. And when that happens, people see and feel the change. So as we wrap up and conclude, what, what are those idols? What are those things that you, you believe will bring you satisfaction if you get them or attain them? What are those things you have to hold on to and protect at all costs? What are those things that you are willing to sacrifice anything for? And if God has revealed one of those, would you turn from that? Would you trust that area to God? Would you turn and follow him? And secondly, maybe you're here and you, you have never trusted Jesus for your life. You are pursuing the things of this world for your happiness and for your joy and for your satisfaction. You are trusting them for a future. And my plea to you is just to see that the gospel is better. That Jesus is better. He doesn't need you to protect him, but he will protect you. He doesn't need you to sacrifice for him, but he has already given his life for you. And it's in him alone that life and joy and satisfaction and peace can be found. That's not always easy. It doesn't mean that life's going to be easy today. But you can live with confidence that you are forgiven and eternal life is your future. So have you ever experienced the gospel? Have you ever trusted Jesus with your life? If not, would you do that today? Would you surrender your life and say, Jesus, would you be my Lord? and Would you forgive me of my sins? And then lastly, is if you are a follower of Jesus, is your love for him growing? As you look at your life, are you magnifying his name or are you magnifying something else? If not, is, is, is there a sin in your life you need to repent from and take a break from, a dramatic break from? Do people see the way you live? Do they recognize there's something different about you? If not, would you just turn whatever area it is that you, are, uh, that you have turned to idols or to the world, would you turn from those things and trust them to him? And make much of his name. So the Tuckers, they're going to they're gonna come and they're going to play for us a final song. And as they come, I'm just going to close us in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that 